driving on, keeping the ball alive. Doggy Vera is almost like a back row forward. And great stuff there by Doddy Weir, who, uh, when he goes like that, he's like a mad giraffe, but he's got great skills. Well, hello, everybody. Welcome to our latest edition of the Dodcast. Great to be with you once again, still in semi-lockdown. So we're all doing this once again remotely, but that seems to work. And uh, it does mean that we're all able to talk and keep connected, the wonders of technology. Hope you're all keeping well. Um, I'm delighted to be joined by our guests today. Doddy, of course, Doddy Weir. Uh, is with us. We're also joined by uh, Sean McGrath, our medical strategy lead at My Name Study Foundation, and our very special guest today is Professor Amar Al Chalabi, Professor of Neurology at King's College Hospital, London. He's also a founder member of our scientific advisory panel at the foundation, which helps steer our thinking on research strategy, uh, and an eminent uh, professor in the field of motor neuron disease. So welcome. Uh, before we start, I want to just say a big thank you to Rugby Pass and our producer, Tim Groves, the font of all knowledge, as I like to call them, uh, for their support with our Dodcasts, and also to Aberdeen Standard Investments, our great friends at Aberdeen Standard Investments, who make it all possible and support us every day at the foundation. So thank you to them particularly. And to all of you who've been in touch with us over the last um, few months, um, before and during lockdown, because we decided to base this uh, Dodcast on what's happening within the motor neuron disease space and community with regards not only potential treatments, but also research. Because you ask us many, many questions. We are fortunate to have the benefit of talking to our professors on our scientific advisory panel and hearing what's going on. And it, we felt it would be really timely to share some of that information with you and answer some of the questions that we receive every day both from patients, families with experience of motor neuron disease and the wider community who've got an interest in, in what we're trying to do. So thank you for being in touch with us and thank you to everybody for joining us. We will kick off, as we always do, by asking the big man himself how he's doing up there on the farm. Doddy, how are you doing and what's going on at the moment? Joe, lovely to hear from you. You've never lost it there in lockdown. But yeah, lockdown's been quite strange. It's been quite busy. Uh, I reached a milestone in my life reaching 50 there uh, early July there's some more questions coming in I think for the dog cast today so reaching 50 was was pretty special I've got my eye on October now that's my wife's 50th so things not too bad but I want to explain to people who are listening today uh, M&D we're giving a big fight at the moment I'm still not all that well I need help with eating so somebody has to kind of feed me. I need help with showering, I need help with clothing. But in saying that, the mind is still very fresh. I'm able to drive my tractor. I'm still able to go to the gym. I've got a house gym, cut the grass, do a lot of other things. So in a lot of ways, I'm still winning the battle, both physically and mentally in my head. So with that, we're doing not too bad. And, and today, very excited, especially Amar on the program, the founding of all knowledge of MD. So really excited about today's program. 
Great to hear you, Dottie. And uh, yeah, a brilliant 50th birthday. And it was wonderful to get all the messages of support um, to the foundation and to yourself personally during your birthday weekend uh, in July. And we look forward to Mary Doll's birthday in October. We'll have a little raise a glass then too, I am sure. So uh, Amar, welcome. Uh, and thank you for not only coming on today, but of course, for all that you do uh, and, and the support that you've shown to us at the foundation since we launched. And, and you've been a key member of that scientific advisory panel since we started. And of course, you have a wonderful relationship with Sean McGrath, our medical strategy lead, who really does um, steer our thinking and works so closely with all of you and, and keeps his finger on the pulse of what's going on globally in, in the world of, of motor neuron disease research and treatments. So I'm going to hand over to the capable hands of our medical strategy lead, Sean, who will ask some questions. Doddy will be chipping in, I'll be chipping in, but I think the, the key thing here today is just to get as much information from you as possible and the best person to do that, I'll have to defer to, to, uh, to Sean McGrath. So Sean, I'm handing you, I'm, I'm passing you the ball. Thank you very much, Jill, That's, uh, and it's great to be here. Yes, we do try and keep in touch with what's going on in, in M&D research, both from a preclinical and clinical point of view, but it is difficult because, uh, I, you know, where do we start? And, and I, know, I know over the last few years, there's been uh, increasing optimism um, in what is coming down the track in terms of research, and uh, that hasn't always been the case. So it's good to, when I speak to Amar and colleagues, I really do get a sense of, of this optimism about stuff that is happening in, in certain pockets of research. And, uh, and that's all very, but it's a lot, it's, there's a lot of information to try and keep on top of. And this is why we're doing this podcast. So Amar, thank you very much um, for, for taking your time to, to help work through this, this, uh, this complicated field of research. And I think maybe the best way to start is, is can you identify the, the broad areas or, or, or the broad themes of research that is going on in motor neuron disease right now? Um, yes, thank you. And thank you for such a lovely welcome. The general fields that are probably the hot topics at the moment are improving trial design, understanding what's causing motor neuron disease. That's really achieved a huge boost recently. And I suppose the other one is unusual strategies for treatment that wouldn't have been possible even five, 10 years ago, that are now things that are really advancing quite rapidly. So ideas like, do stem cells help? Ideas like, what about gene therapy? So those kinds of areas are really hot topics at the moment. Let's look at trial design, and because and, uh, I know there's some, there's some big improvements and some interesting uh, and uh, exciting ways to deliver clinical trials. Yeah, so the way trials have always been done traditionally is a drug company comes along and says, we would like to try this drug. And then we have to negotiate with them for staff. We set up the trial, which typically takes a year, maybe two years. And then the trial begins. And then two or three years later, you've got an answer. And then you have to dismantle your team with all their expertise. And then you start again with the next trial. And that's a really unsatisfactory way of doing things. It takes a long time. You lose expertise each time. And it takes forever to get any kind of answer. So um, groups in Europe led partly by the UK and also in the USA and in Australia, we're all working together to try and improve this and, and make it a better way of doing trials. So one of the ways we can do this is by having what's called a perpetual trial. So the trial team is always there and you have multiple studies going on all at the same time. So you might start with one study and then in parallel, you'll add in a second study and maybe a third study, which might seem obvious to do, but actually in terms of the regulations around it and how you would do that logistically, it's quite complicated. But that approach is really taking off now. And I know the My Name's Doddy Foundation has funded MND Smart, which is one of the first trials like that, particularly in any neurological disease, 
to, to launch. And that's a really nice idea to start with. Um, we've also got the Healy Center in the US doing something similar with their platform. And we've got another group in, in Europe, which we're part of, which is called TriCals. And that is using a slightly different approach. So we still have the perpetual trial idea, but you're allowed standalone trials instead of everything going into one big pot. Um, and also within that, we've got four other arms. The reason we wanted this is because at the moment, all trials do is they ask a simple question, does this drug work or not? But actually, there's a lot more we should learn from a trial. For example, we want to learn, are we targeting this at the right person? Because motor neuron disease affects different people in different ways. And what we don't know is, are these all different types of motor neuron disease? And would they all respond to the same treatment? So it's important to know, do we categorize people into subgroups and, or not? And how do we do that? So that's one of the other things we try and answer with that. Another way is to ask questions about biomarkers. Now, biomarkers are chemicals, for example, in the blood or in the urine that tell you, is the drug doing what you think it should do? And can you measure how fast the disease is progressing, progressing using this chemical? And that's actually not really being done in motor neuron disease properly. We're beginning to make a breakthrough in that. But if we can find a biomarker that would tell us quickly, does this drug work? You could do a drug trial much more quickly than the one or two years we're typically taking now. Another thing we're trying to target is asking, are we measuring the right things in the trial? Is the outcome the correct outcome? So most trials traditionally have looked at survival, which is a really brutal outcome, or function. And we don't have very good ways of measuring how well someone is functioning. So are there better measures we can use for the outcomes? That's another thing we can learn from trials. And then the final thing is, at the moment, all trials are done collecting the information. Each trial collects it in a different way. But actually, if we collected the information in the same way, everyone across the world, then we could share all the information from all the trials in one big go and, and really reach understanding much more quickly. So the idea of TriCals is to do all of those things at the same time as a clinical trial. And I know, again, the My Name Study Foundation has very kindly agreed to fund the TriCals team in the UK and Ireland. So those are the ways that we're trying to move forward with trials. You say it, and it, it sounds so um, matter of fact. You know that the, these trial platforms are being established, and 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 that this work is ongoing. And but I think for us, it's it, it's quite breathtaking because I think one of the most frustrating things in Doddy's world was on diagnosis. Quite a short time ago, there were no there were no clinical trials for many many years. There just hasn't been anything to actually try. There's been no drugs to take to trial, and and Doddy, that's been one of the big drivers for you, hasn't it? This fact, this sense of you know, if you if you have if you receive a terrible diagnosis of of cancer or or so many illnesses, almost immediately you are taken into a, an automatic trial. And and I think for motor neuron disease to even be in a situation where we're talking about trials is really quite exciting, isn't it? Uh, very much so. I think your mind was singing very similar to mine. And Amal, if you don't mind me asking, why, this is quite a tricky one, why is it taking 30 years to have, really always on the table 30 years ago, to have nothing more since then? Because a lot of patients with MND are thinking, why is there nothing new on the table that we can look at and maybe take? It's, a, it's such an important question, and it's a, it's a, it is a tricky one. The part of the problem is Rilusol was actually discovered by accident. So the reason Rilusol was trialled and that we thought it worked isn't actually the reason it works. We know that now, but it did have an effect. So it improved survival by about 38 40%, which is modest, but it is a definite effect, and it's the only effect in any neurodegenerative disease. So how can we do other how can we find other drugs that might do it it's the same kind of problem to make another drug you have to understand your drug target 
and the technology hasn't been there to understand what's causing motor neuron disease. And so all the different ideas about how do you target this, they, they've all come to nothing. So we've thought this drug might work. I mean, there have been trials. There have been something like 20 or 30 trials. It depends what you count as a trial. In fact, some, there's could be, you could say there's been 60 trials in that 30 years, but none of them has really translated into any, anything effective. And you're right, that is a, a disaster. One of the reasons for us all coming together as a community, a research community across the world, is because of that. It's because of our increasing frustration. Every time we think there's something that looks promising and then it fails at phase three, that's, you know, that's, a, that's heartbreaking and it's, it's wrong. And so that's why we're trying these other strategies. We're, really, we're, we're doing things better. The other thing I'd just like to say is that our technology and our understanding of what causes motor neuron disease is really turning a corner at the moment. It's dramatically improving. So even 10 years ago, we didn't really have any causes. Now we can explain 15% of people with motor neuron disease, we can say why they've got their disease. And that in itself gives us a huge insight in and how to target the drug, the disease. Do you see that then, sorry for Batman there, what is the causes? Can you explain a lot of the causes that you know? So those 15% are, expl are explained by genetic changes. So most people with motor neuron disease have no family history of the condition. About 5% of people have many people in the family affected. And we've known for many years that those people must have a genetic background. But the other 90% of people, 95%, don't have a strong genetic basis for their condition. But we still know that genes influence the risk of disease in those people. They influence them not in a way that you'd necessarily inherit. They influence them each by increasing your risk a little bit, so 5%, 10%, so small amounts. But if you have enough of those variations, they add up and increase your risk a lot. They don't increase the risk to your relatives because they're only each adding 5% or 10%, and you'd have to inherit the exact same combination. But they're enough in that person to have triggered the condition. And we know, for example, there's one gene with a, a name which is a bit uh, a mouthful, C9RF72, which we can just call C9 for short. So the C9 gene in the UK, it, variations in that gene that cause motor neuron disease are found in 8% of people, regardless of whether they have a family history. So if we could find a, a drug that would target that gene, then we would be able to cure 8 to 10% of people. So it's, a, it, it's an important thing to understand why the disease is caused. And that's really the big breakthrough has been the genetic understanding. But there's been another understanding, which is, when I, I started in this field in 1994, just as result was being trialed. And at that time, firstly, no one thought there was a genetic basis for people with no family history. And the second thing everyone said was, there's no inflammation in motor neuron disease. But actually now we know both of, things are, both of those things are false. And actually inflammation is the other hot topic. Inflammation, which is your body's immune response suddenly being activated. That seems to be important for motor neuron disease as well. And so there are drug trials targeting that pathway because that might be something that would affect everybody regardless of the underlying first cause. If it activates the immune system every single time, then targeting the immune system might be a good way to treat everybody. So the people with MND, should they not be looked upon to see you've got this gene? Does everyone get tested at the moment? <laughs> so they do in some countries and not in others. To that's in the UK? It's the exact question we need to ask. So in the UK, no, not everyone gets tested. Um, everybody probably should be tested. The reason I say that, which I think we're going to probably discuss later in the, in the Dodcast, is that gene therapies are on the horizon. And so it does make sense to test people. Until then, it hasn't necessarily made sense to test people without a family history because you can't really interpret the result. You know, if you've got no family history, but you have a gene, it's difficult to know how much that's contributing and what it really means. But now... If there is a gene therapy that would target that gene, then you can interpret what to do. There's a 
positive gene, you should target it with a treatment. So I think the mood is definitely changing now and, and we will start to, to sample everybody and test their genes. And we've seen that in cancer as well. Uh, if there's a reason to test, i.e. there's a therapeutic reason to test, then people are tested uh, because, because there, is a, there could be a positive outcome with a certain drug or gene therapy to, to offer. But there, if there isn't anything to offer, then it's kind of pointless. We were talking about gene therapies, Emma. So I know it's a massive area. Um, can you give us a lowdown on, on, on where we are with gene therapies and what we're trying to do? Yes. So there are two main strategies you could conceive of for gene therapies. One is to go in directly and edit the person's genes. So edit the person's DNA. Genes are carried by DNA. If someone's got a change in their DNA sequence, that changes the gene and that changes the protein that that gene makes. And your body is made of proteins. So your DNA in the end is what's coding for making your body. It's the information your body uses to make itself. And if there's a misprint in that DNA, then you'll make a different protein and sometimes that can cause a disease. If you could edit that gene change, if you knew it caused motor neuron disease, for example, you could edit it out, then you might be able to cure the condition before it even started. That technology exists, but it's not yet available to use properly in humans. There's, it's technically extremely challenging to use it in a proper way, and there'd be a lot of ethical considerations as well. There's CRISPR. It's CRISPR, yes, CRISPR-Cas9. That's, that's the technical name for it. Why do, sorry about here, because I think it's very exciting what you're saying. Why is it too technical to use in humans? Because I'm pretty certain patients with MND would put their hand up to try and use it on themselves? Yeah, so, so for example, right now, the easiest way to do it would be to do it when you're an embryo. And obviously that has math, massive ethical implications Then it wouldn't have an effect for 50 years, etc. So, so it's not a straightforward thing to do, but we're learning more and more about it. Um, and we also don't really understand fully the side effects of the editing process yet. Um, and we'd have to make sure you definitely target the correct gene absolutely accurately and you don't, you don't have off-target effects. There's, there's lots of things like that that are important to consider. But the, the method we are using now, which is a better method uh, in terms of a, an immediate response, is to edit the product of the gene. So the gene is there. It makes protein, but it does that by making another thing called RNA first. And if you can make a chemical that targets what the gene makes and stops it being made, if you can effectively switch off that gene, then if the gene is otherwise making a harmful product and you switch it off, you've stopped that harmful product being produced and hopefully you've stopped the disease. That's the method being used for two particular genes at the moment. So SOD1, that was the first gene found for motor neuron disease back in 1993. It was one of the first genes discovered for any condition actually. And we've known about that now for 27 years. And now there is a treatment being trialed. It's just going through phase three where we use a special type of anti-DNA that blocks the product of, of mutated SOD1. So people who carry that gene variation, that you can switch off their SOD1. That seems to be safe. It's gone through the phase one and phase two studies, and it's now going through phase three, and we're, we're all hoping for, for remarkable effects with that. In a related motor neuron disease that occurs in, in infants called spinal muscular atrophy, this type of technology can stop the condition from progressing. So it, we are hopeful that the same will ha happen in adults. And then uh, that C9 gene that I mentioned that affects 8 to 10% of people in the UK, that's also the target of the same technology being trialled at the moment. So hopefully, if this technology works, and as I said, in, in infants, we're very, it, it seems to, so we're hopeful it will in adults, that means we'd be able to cure 10, 12% of people with motor neuron disease, or at least stop the condition. And even if, even if it doesn't stop it, but slows it dramatically, that would still be an incredible thing to achieve. So 
we don't know this is going to work yet. That's why it's still going through the trials. But it is, I would say, the most hopeful thing we've seen ever. Am I so putting you on the spot, Ken? Can you give our listeners a time scale of when you'll know whether this idea will work or not work? Yeah, so it'll be basically months to... It'll be, it'll be measured in months. It's, it's not something that's 10 years' time. It's something that's over the next year or two we'll know, maybe sooner. So really exciting stuff in the gene therapy side of things, yeah? Yes, very. Wow. It's the area we're all most interested in. But of course, you know, we have to be realistic. It, 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 it's, this is not for everyone. It's just the people that carry those certain genes. Absolutely. But there will be then strategies to try and see other ways you could adapt this technology to make it more widely applicable. But yes, initially it will just be for people carrying the gene mutation. Is that what pe- most people are, are pinning their hopes on um, in terms of the research world? No. Or, no. no, because it's only affecting... So this is the, this is the dilemma we always have. Do you go for really targeted treatments at a subgroup of people that you know, okay, this is likely to work in this subgroup, but actually there's a large number of people who aren't going to benefit from the treatment? Or do you go for something that might target everybody but might not be as effective? It's, it's the big dilemma. So this particular treatment will be targeting people with these particular gene variations, which isn't a large number of people. The majority of people don't have these gene variations, and so we have to use other strategies. And talking of other strategies, um, we get a lot of information, a lot of requests, and a lot of advice in inverted commas that we should be um, looking at stem cell treatments. I know there's various uh, um, approaches two stem cell treatments. Can you summarize them very briefly? Because I know there's some, there's, some, there's some good stem cell work and there's some not so good stem cell work out there. And it, it, could you just briefly summarize this for us, please? Yeah, so the, the most important thing to understand about the idea of stem cells, the, the first thing to say is stem cells, everyone starts their life as a stem cell. When you're an egg that's just been conceived um, and fertilized and you are the first, you're one cell, you are the ultimate stem cell because that single cell divides and each of those divisions the cells change slightly until they make all the different cells of your body. So your entire body has come from one single cell. And a stem cell is a cell that can do that. When it divides, the daughter cells can change slightly and then adapt into new types of cell. So the idea of stem cells initially was, could we put stem cells into the nervous system to replace these motor nerves that have been lost? Because in motor neurone disease, the nerve cells disappear. And so perhaps you could put in a stem cell, it will divide and make a new nerve cell that will replace the lost nerve cell. That, uh, with modern technology, seems utterly impossible. So that's the first thing to say. The way that we're using stem cells isn't to replace lost motor nerves. The way we're using stem cells as an idea is to see, do these stem cells somehow keep the motor neurons that are there alive for longer? Do they, do they protect them in some way? And there's some evidence that they might because these stem cells are youthful and they secrete youthful chemicals and they keep all the cells around them feeling young and happy. And so that was the idea between in using stem cell therapy. Now, there are lots of approaches to stem cell therapies, but the, the one that seems to be gaining the most traction is a method where you take bone marrow cells. So you, you drill into someone's bone marrow, which is a painful procedure, but we do it under local anesthetic. You take out the bone marrow, usually from the, the hip, for example. So you take out the bone marrow and then you process that in some way. Usually, most technologies nowadays will store that in liquid nitrogen so you don't have to keep harvesting the person's stem cells. The the reason we use bone marrow cells is because although they're not like a fertilized egg, they are quite a long way down because they're bone marrow cells, they can make lots of different types of cell. So then we take those stem cells and then we reprogram them and then we put them into either muscle 
or the spinal canal. And then the idea is that they will know where to go and then go into the nervous system and keep the cells around them happy. Now we've been doing this kind of thing in lymphoma and leukemia in, in blood cancers for years. I, I did, in fact, I did a bone marrow transplant back in 1994, I think it was. In fact, even before that. And in blood disorders, they do work by replacing the damaged bone marrow. So you destroy someone's bone marrow, you stick the, the new bone marrow into the person and it knows where to go and they grow into new blood cells. And, and that's the idea behind it. In the nervous system, we're not trying to do that. As I said, we're trying to make them go into the nervous system, but just keep the other cells alive. The studies that have been done so far, no one's done a phase three study. So we don't know definitely does this work. The studies that have been done so far simply show that this doesn't seem to be a dangerous thing to do. So you can take stem cells, you can inject them into the nervous system and they seem to be safe. That's the only thing you can correctly conclude from the studies that have been done so far. Now, some people will say, well, they, they really slow the disease dramatically. They have incredible effects. There's no strong evidence for that. And we've seen time and again in motor neuron disease trials, phase two results. So a phase two trial is, is a smaller trial than a big phase three one. It's where you're really seeing, does this drug have any safety considerations? In the phase two study, they've shown some changes, but we've, what we've seen repeatedly in motor neuron disease is phase two studies that look hopeful. And then when they are trialed in larger numbers of, numbers of people, they don't have the same benefit. So we really can't say at the moment, are stem cells a beneficial thing or not? but they definitely seem to be a safe thing to proceed with. And so the phase three studies are going ahead. And I think the first one is from a drug called Neurone, which is a stem cell strategy, just like I've just described. And that, um, the phase three study, I think is expecting to conclude at the end of this year. So by the end of this year, we should know, is that stem cell approach a method that's worth exploring further? Uh, Mark, for the other 85%, maybe do have an issue with the genes, a lot of people go into the lovely internet to have a look to see what drugs are available. Are you able to explain what the phases are about that people should maybe look at and identify whether what they're reading is correct? Like phase one, two, three, and then... Sure. So to make a drug come to market, and by drug I include any kind of intervention, so cells as well and gene therapies, you have to go through preclinical studies. So that studies before you even get to humans, just to show that in cells, for example, it does what you think it does. Then you come to first in man studies and typically treatments are given to healthy volunteers. And those are in small numbers to make sure there's no crazy reaction and to get the, the dosing, to make sure the dosing is correct. Then you go to phase two studies and those are slightly larger. So typically in 10, 20, 30, 40 people, just to see, are there any safety considerations in larger numbers of people with the condition? And also, is there a hint of a signal? Is it worth going to phase three? And then the phase three study is usually the definitive study that asks the question, does this treatment work or not? And that's a much larger scale thing. That's In most neuro disease, that's typically 200 to 300 participants will take part in a, in a trial like that. Whereas in um, something like cancer or, or high blood pressure or heart disease, it may be thousands of people that would take part in a, in a phase three study. So our phase three studies are much smaller generally, but those are the phases of a, stu of a study. If you're a researcher, the, the source of information that you rely on the most is a thing called PubMed, which is an open access database. Everyone can go to it. You just Google PubMed, P-U-B-M-E-D. And in PubMed, you've got all the peer reviewed papers. So anything that's, that's in PubMed generally is of high quality and you can, you can read it there. Another source that I look at, or I recommend my patients to look at, 
which also covers complementary type therapies, is a, a website called ALS Untangled. And that's run by my counterpart at Duke University, Richard Bedlack, who's famous for wearing um, unusual jackets. He runs this ALS Untangled resource. And what's good about it is you can vote for any therapy you like to be assessed. And then Richard, with his team of people, will look at that and they'll look at the quality, the quantity and the direction of evidence for that particular treatment. And then they summarize all of that and then they'll publish an open access paper. It gets published in a proper journal indexed on PubMed. And it's written in a way that non-scientists can understand. So it's deliberately written for, for a lay person to understand. And it tells you whether they think that is worth exploring as a treatment, whether it's worth taking. And because they include things like health food supplements or things that you may be able to just buy easily, it's a good resource. So, for example, one of the things they're saying should be researched further is curcumin, which is a type of turmeric, a type of chili powder. They, they say the evidence for that actually is, is quite interesting and it seems relatively safe and that should be looked at in a clinical trial formally. So it's a good website to get ideas for complementary therapies, but also it's a good website if you're thinking, if someone's saying to you, oh, give me £10,000 and I'll do this for you, I'll give you high dose vitamin C as an uh, injection and that will treat you. You can go to the ALS Untangled website and see has that been looked at and what's the evidence for it. Good idea. So do you use your advice on the drugs um, that if it doesn't have a phase three, do not touch? In general, yes. You could argue that's a conservative view. But the, reason, the reasons are, firstly, the explanation I gave before, that the phase two studies, so many times we've gone to phase three and they've not crossed that divide between phase two and phase three. It's so frustrating. And you obviously don't want to be taking something that could be harming you or, or just is pointless. So that's the main reason. But the second reason actually is safety. We really only know properly about long-term side effects and safety after a phase three trial. And for example, diaphragm pacing, which is a method where you put a wire into someone's diaphragm because the diaphragm is the thing that becomes weak and affects people's breathing in motor neuron disease. You might think, well, why can't we put a wire in and just make the diaphragm contract electrically because it's just a muscle? And then you could make people's diaphragm stronger and they would be better. And that's been trialed. And actually, the trial, at least in the UK, showed that people with diaphragm pacing did worse than people who didn't have it. So actually, the treatment was harmful. So it is important to have the proper evidence. And, and I appreciate, obviously, the other argument is this is a desperate situation. People are dying. They don't have time to wait. And I fully understand that argument as well. As a doctor and a scientist, I have to say what is safest for my patients, and that's to wait for phase three. Um, I mentioned 85% of the people, what's on the market and what's research is happening behind the scenes for them at the moment? A lot. So the trials that are currently in progress or have just going, are just going from phase two to phase three, there's a lot of them. If I just highlight three rather than listing a huge, uh, massive long list, um, and actually, I can just use this opportunity to also highlight a thing called the ALS Dashboard, which I am ALS, which is a foundation in the USA, is setting up. And the ALS Dashboard is um, a list of all the clinical trials across the world that are taking place for motor neuron disease. And it will be dynamically updated with the eligibility criteria and the start dates, the end dates and the outcome. So that's that's being started. So once that's live, that'll be a really good resource for people. Um, in terms of things that we could talk about today that... So one of them, low-dose interleukin-2, that's a treatment that's being trialed in a, in a trial called Mirocals. That's about to finish, so hopefully by the end of the year we'll have the results of that. The idea of that is that the immune system in motor neuron disease 
is affected, as I said at the beginning. And people with motor immune disease seem to have a low level of a type of white blood cell called a TREG, a T-regulatory lymphocyte. And this white blood cell is like the police force for your immune system. So what it does is it stops your immune system from being too aggressive, but it also stops it from being too laid back and not caring about things that are coming in. So it, it makes the balance of your immune system not being too aggressive and not too passive. But in people with motor neurone disease, on average, the Treg level seems to be too low. And so the idea of this low dose interleukin-2 is to raise your Treg levels up to a more normal, in inverted commas, level and see if that is helpful. So that's one study that's going on. Another one is that we showed back in the 1990s that there is the signal of a retrovirus in the blood of people with motor neurone disease more frequently than it is in the general population. Now, retroviruses are sometimes infective and sometimes they're inherited. And that might seem strange that you can inherit a virus, but 8% of your DNA is retrovirus DNA. So it's not even human DNA. And it's just carried through the generations. It's been there for millions of years. It comes in through evolution. To put it in context, only 1% of your DNA codes for proteins that make a human. So 8% codes for these viruses. And we showed that it's actually this inherited retrovirus DNA that seems to be activated in, in some people with motoneurine disease. And so you might think, well, then using a treatment that targets other retroviruses might treat that. And HIV is a retrovirus. Obviously, that's an infective one, not an inherited one. But we've looked at treatments that might target HIV to see would it target motoneurine disease. And so there's a trial at the moment just about to start uh, called the Lighthouse 2 study. We've already had the Lighthouse 1 study, which showed that this treatment is safe for people with motoneurine disease. Um, and so the next step is to do the Lighthouse 2 study. You can't just go and buy this drug, Triamik, because about 5% of people have a particular blood type that means they'll have a fatal allergic reaction to it. So it does have to be tested properly by a doctor first. But um, if that works, then that would treat many people, uh, at least uh, because most uh, in our study, about 60% of people had this signal in their blood. So that, that's one thing that's being trialed as well. And then the third thing to mention is TUDCA. So taro urso deoxycholic acid, that's a drug that's um, being trialled at the moment in, across Europe. Can I ask about, we're talking about the, 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 the majority of patients, ones that are not infected by an inherited gene. What is the role of, of TDP43 accumulation? And there seems to be a lot of work and, and seems to be present in almost all motor neuron disease patients. And what, so, so first of all, what is the role and what are we doing about it? What we knew... Again, when I started in the field in, the 19, in 1994, we knew that people with motor neurone disease had in their cells, in the motor cells, clumps of protein, but we didn't know what the protein was. And that was subsequently found to be this protein called TDP43. So TDP43 protein accumulations, these lumps, are found in 98% of people with motor neurone disease. The 2% of people they're not found in are people carrying the SOD1 mutation, which is this first gene ever found to cause motor neurone disease. But everybody else seems to have, at least as a final common pathway, for some reason, accumulation of this protein TDP43. Now, what we don't know is, is the TDP43 accumulation what's killing the cell? Or is it the cells that are dying in the way that motor neuron cells die accumulate TDP43? In other words, is it just a marker? Or is it actually the, the thing that's causing the, the cell damage? And that, that's why there's a lot of research into it. So if we can find a treatment that blocks whatever's causing the TDP43 to accumulate, because it affects so many people, that might be a really good strategy to protect motor neurons in general and stop the disease. 
And there's, there's obviously repurposing work that's going on as well. And we know we are, as a foundation, we're sponsoring work uh, in Oxford and in Edinburgh. And so that's obviously taking drugs that are used in other kinds of diseases and trying to see if there's any effect of them in motor neuron disease, or at least getting some signal. And that seems to be a, a, a useful way as well, because those drugs already exist. Absolutely. So in fact, two of the drugs I mentioned earlier, in fact, all three, are already available for, for other conditions. So trimic is available for HIV. High dose interleukin-2 is available for some types of renal cancer. Low dose isn't really available generally, but obviously if high dose is available, you could take a smaller dose. And that's the other thing to say really, is that because we've got increased international collaboration, so as scientists, we all share all of our information. I, I lead with others a project called Project Mine, which is a huge international project to sequence the DNA, the entire genome of 20,000 people with motor neuron disease, actually 22,500. That's about halfway through at the moment. Each genome costs about $1,000 or 1,000 euros to sequence. So it's not a trivial undertaking. But we share all of that. As soon as that's known, it's made publicly available. So you can go now to the website and download the information if you want. That's available to all researchers. And because of that kind of international collaboration, we've got increased understanding of the disease. And that means that pharmaceutical companies are also more interested in motor neuron disease as, as a space to go into. So five years ago, I might have one inquiry from a drug company a year. I've had six in the last month. So there's a really much greater awareness of the condition, partly actually because of people like you, Doddy, campaigning, um, and partly because our understanding of the disease is increasing. And so they understand that maybe they could make a rational target, they could understand where to target their drug and, and that it might work. So actually new drugs coming on the market as well as repurposed ones, both of those are really accelerating the, the search. And before we get into non-drug approaches, I just wanted to cover off the complementary therapies. You've already mentioned Tudka, of course, but there's vitamins and there's all, there's all kinds of other things that patients can uh, um, explore. What are your thoughts on those? And is ALS Untangled the best place to look at it, the advice for these so ALS Untangled, in my view, is the best way to get an evidence-based approach. You can also use another approach, which is just to ask yourself some simple questions. So, for example, let's say you want to take vitamin B12, and let's say vitamin B12 hadn't been looked at on ALS Untangled. You can ask yourself, is it expensive? Is it harmful? If the answer to both of those is no, then it's not an unreasonable Am thing. I just, oh, sorry if I jump in there, how do people know it's not harmful? So they can ask their doctor. In general, water-soluble vitamins are not harmful because your body will just weed them out. And fat-soluble vitamins can be harmful because they can accumulate. And the way I remember which of the fat-soluble vitamins is I remember the word Dalek, D-A-L-E-K. So the L stands for lipid, which is a medical word for fat. And then vitamins D, A, E, and K are the fat-soluble ones. You could also obviously ask your doctor because there's more vitamins than just those. But for example, vitamin B12, if you take a lot of it, you just wee it out. And so probably it's safe. We don't know definitely without doing a proper big trial of high dose vitamin B12, for example, but you could assume that at least the levels you would get from a health food shop are safe because they're sold in a health food shop and you would just weigh it out. So that kind of approach, if someone's saying to me, if you give me 10,000 pounds and I'll give you vitamin B12, then that's a different question. And I would generally say no. So if, if you haven't got evidence for, for what you're paying a lot of money for, then don't do it. Because there's a, there's a surprising number of people out there willing to exploit people who are in a desperate situation, and they're quite happy to make money from them. So I think that's why sites like ALS Untangled are so good, because 
they help at least give you some ammunition in, in knowing whether to proceed or not? Um, okay, um, let's explore a little bit non-drug approaches um, from hyperbaric oxygen therapy to collars and to little things that, that, that help patients tie laces and drive their cars and eat and drink. Where is the best advice to, to find information about this? And, and, and again, is there any evidence around these things? I, I know they're on drugs, so what kind of evidence should patients look for? Yeah, so there's two main types of approach there, actually three really. So one is devices, and there's, me- there's a, an abs- actual definition of a medical device, but there's some devices that might make life easier. Then there's things like collars, which I wouldn't call a device. I mean, they are actually, but, the, but I'm, by device, I really meant technology, electronic technology. But there are things like collars and self-tying shoelaces and approaches like that. The best source of information for those would be an occupational therapist. So occupational therapists specialize in finding practical solutions to everyday problems that someone might face. And so if, for example, you can't do buttons because you've lost fine control of your fingers, then what can you do? An occupational therapist would assess you and say, with your level of ability, maybe a button hook would work. Or maybe you should be looking at Velcro or zips so that they can help you with the practical solution. I'm not aware of a website that is the equivalent of ALS Untangled for those kind of assistive devices but there may be one. Dottie, you, you've mentioned a website before, haven't you? I did, but I can't remember what it is. I think it's called com- completecare.something. I found them, that, that website very helpful. So, for example, I've got some chalks in my chair. It just hides the chair up a little bit, so it allows you to get on and off the chair without any hassle. And just, again, allows you to be free from, from the MND issue and keep the mindset going in the right direction. And did you find an occupational therapist was useful? Uh, a little bit, am I? Yeah, I found quite a lot of the professional people, maybe not as helpful as they could be or should be. You're an exception to this. Your information today has been quite outstanding. But yeah, they seem to give you exercises to try and help, but maybe not completely help with this problem. How would people get in touch with an occupational therapist? So usually the GP will be able to set an occupational therapist up for you um, or your, your local neurologist. Or if you're at a specialist centre and there are 20 in the UK, then a specialist would be able to do it. Because I honestly think a lot of the gimmicks are, not gimmicks, but um, things like rubber laces for myself being a great thing. So it allows me to get my shoes on and off which there gives me a mental side to say, M&D, you're not stopping me getting my shoes on and off. Little things like that, like straws, like hiding your chair a little bit. I've gone to the next stage and got an eye watch at the moment, so that allows myself a bit of confidence to go outside, and if I fall over, I'm able to use that to phone my good lady to come and help me. Just little things like that. I think are a great sentiment to keep a smile on your face. And I think also, Doddy, and I think there's no harm in us mentioning this, Sean and Doddy, and I think, Amar, you've probably been party to this as well. We've been working on something which we would hope would be ready quite soon, uh, Sean, which we've put together a, a booklet, really, of, of some of the things that, that Doddy's found useful over the last couple of years, um, some of his own personal experiences that we think might be helpful to 
patients who first receive this awful diagnosis and, and, are, and, and in many ways, as Doddy always says, the first thing they do is they take to the internet, which sometimes is not the right thing or not right at that time. And, and we've put together some really practical experience help. Doddy, in his usual candid way, has talked about the things that he found useful. And, you know, I think it is really valuable. It's the kind of thing you think is probably already there, but when you actually start digging around and, and seeing different parts of the country, it's not necessarily um, standard procedure for people to receive this level of information. And we're not saying that it's right for everybody and we're not saying that these things will will help everybody. But certainly it's a very personal piece from Doddy, which we would like to share with other patients because that's the kind of questions we get asked all the time. Is Doddy doing this? How is he managing this? And I think, Doddy, you, the, the, one of the great things that you've been able to do in the last couple of years is really share that experience and and you haven't haven't been frightened to try different things whether it be you know your, your experience in the gym or you do some physiotherapy in the swimming pool obviously a lot of these have been unavailable during the lockdown but I think that's that's been a big part of what we've been focusing on the last few months while we have been in lockdown getting this down in print so that you can share that with other patients it's been important to you hasn't it Doddy? Very much so yeah vital and I think that's I had a lot to do while I'm still here. I'm nearly four years in. But also what you're saying, I've been very lucky with the team I've had behind. I'm on and the, and the team and the scientific advisory board have been just amazing because you can see the level of information that's been mentioned today, along with the, the, the aids and the help me to pretty much live a normal life, although we've got this term, terminal issue. It's been a great help and great insight. So the team have been amazing. And long way we continue. Emma, can I just ask you about the uh, about the Surf Prize? Yes, the Surf Prize is from the Cullen Education Research Foundation. Um, sorry, the Cullen Education Research Fund, and it's a medical prize competition. You can find it at www.surfprize, which is c-e-r-f-prize.com, and that's open to anybody to try and find a functional solution to the problems of motor neurone disease. So ideally to stop atrophy or that kind of problem affecting how well you can use your hands. The idea is to make people remain as independent for as long as possible by any means, biological, physical, chemical, electrical, whatever method you like. It's a million euro prize. Anyone can enter. We're hoping organizations will enter as well. And the idea is, it's also, sorry, it's an individual prize. So it's, it's a million euros to the person, not to their institution. And, it's, and uh, it'll be judged by a panel that includes patients. And the idea is that we should be able to solve the, the challenges that come with, for example, not being able to pick up a cup of tea. How, is there a way to fix that or, or stop it or, or improve it? It's not trying to cure motor neurone disease, because obviously there's a lot of other initiatives trying to do that. It's trying to solve this specific problem of the functional issues around remaining independent. Excellent. Well, I think this has been a really good whistle-stop tour through the world of uh, motor neuron disease research. And, uh, and, and it, it, yeah, I think it's, it's, um, we'll obviously get feedback from all of the listeners, but it's, uh, it's, it's reassuring to know that there's so much going on. And thank you to you and all of your colleagues, Amar. It's really, really good to hear. Thank you, and thank you very much for all the support you give us as well. And Doddy, is there anything, while we've got him here, I've, I've always loved to let him go. Just, I know we've been on for a while, but just very quickly, Doddy, anything you just just want to ask? Or... Well, I don't know. I think Amar has answered the questions, as he always does very well. So Amar, just sitting on the fence, how long will it be before we get a cure or stoppage to this disease? 
Yeah. So if you'd asked me that 26 years ago, I would have said never. But now I would honestly say in the next months to years, we will probably be able to stop motoneurone disease, even if it's just for a small proportion of people. And just being able to achieve that for any neurodegenerative disease will be an incredible achievement. And then I think the drug companies will see, yes, this is a curable condition. We'll get a lot of work coming in. And that's why it's so important that we've got these foundations of the different trial platforms in place, because then we're ready for that to happen. Good news. As, uh, yeah, exactly, Doddy. Good news. As always, Amar, when we talk to you, we come away feeling energised, enthused. And, you know, we work very hard with our amazing, amazing volunteers, fundraisers, people who go to extraordinary lengths with incredible imaginations to help raise funds for us. Uh, and then we talk to people like you and we, you know, we give this this funding to you to go and do your amazing work. And, and you know, it's wonderful to be able to feed back to some of these people who've been raising these sums for us so they can hear what's going on within the community. And I think, you know, it's important that we share with patients what's going on. But I think it's also important we share with all of our amazing supporters what's going on so they can see that there is progress being made. Um, I just want to thank Sean. As always, uh, our medical strategy lead does a huge amount of work, Sean McGrath. We couldn't do it without you. And really, you know, thank you for everything that you do, but also for steering that conversation today, because... I ask you lots of questions, you ask our professors lots of questions, and it was just great that we were able to do it in a sort of public forum today. Uh, Tim, the font of all knowledge, and your wonderful friends at Rugby Pass, thank you so much for um, producing us and making sure we all get on air and, and sharing this widely. And to our friends at Aberdeen Standard Investments, who support us so well, uh, and thank you to everybody within ASI, not only for the support with the Dodcast, but everything they do for us and, and all the team there. And to Doddy particularly, because you keep asking the questions, you keep putting us on the spot, you keep challenging us, you keep pushing back. And I think without that, none of us would be doing what we're doing. So big thanks to the big man and love to you. Uh, listen, thank you for listening, everybody. Um, if you've got any feedback to what we've been talking about today, by all means, go to our website, fire in an email, and we'll do our best to answer it. What I might also do is, what I might also do is ask Sean <laughs> to maybe go through some of the points today and just do a little um, resume of what we've talked about. But more importantly, just some of the websites that you mentioned there um, are and possibly the, the, the price that's available as well that we were talking about, just so that it's there on our website as well. Be useful in a little story there on our news section. There's lots going on. We're beginning to see this lockdown easing. Fingers crossed if people go about it in the right way. We've got more and more events happening. Keep an eye on our website because you know, there's lots of incredible people doing doing some stuff for us. So um, thank you, everybody, for your interest. Thank you to our guests today, uh, ASI, Rugby Pass, and, uh, and to everybody involved. And we will talk to you very soon in our next podcast. Bye-bye. There they are, driving on, keeping the ball alive. When he goes like that, he's like a mad giraffe, but he's got great skills.